Hi, this is Bob Murphy, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Nick Gosling, and joining me today is David Thoreau. David is the founder and president of the Independent Institute, as well as the C.S. Lewis Society of California. Previously in his career, he had been the founding vice president of academic affairs at the Cato Institute and founding president of the Pacific Research Institute for Public Policy. He's also an advisor to us here at LCI. Today, David will be talking with us about C.S. Lewis and his thinking on natural law. So, David, thanks for being with us. It's it's really an honor to have you here. You're uh, a, a very influential member of the Liberty Movement and have been for, for a number of decades, and so we're, we're grateful to have you with us today. Well, thanks for the invitation. As we think about C.S. Lewis, you know, obviously, I mean, almost every Christian, at least in, in the Western world, that, that knows who he is. He's one of the most influential Christian thinkers of all time. Uh, he, his works are so prolific, both in, in fiction and, and, and nonfiction. He just wrote so much great stuff. It's like it's, his output was really impressive. So when we think about, like, what, what he had to say to us on on our political philosophy and thinking about the natural law, kind of this underlying precept uh, that comes down from God and permeates our world. Um, can you can you just sort of give us a, a little bit of an overview of Lewis's background and how he kind of came to those conclusions uh, through his life? Well, Lewis was um, a, uh, his family were Anglicans in Northern Ireland uh, when his mother died of cancer, um, he prayed fervently that she would come back to life, and of course that didn't happen. So she, he decided, he uh, concluded subsequently that um, the view that that God was this being that would do His bidding uh, didn't exist, and hence God didn't exist. And so he, Eldon, became very. Uh, stern atheist. Uh, he was was brilliant. Um, ended up going to Oxford and became a professor there, essentially. And uh, in fact, at one point, he was going to write the definitive case against Christianity and theism. And he thought that he had all the arguments down pat. But as time went on, uh, he discovered that most of the writers who he admired. Uh, were Christian, and it bothered him greatly. So, and this included people like G.K. Chesterton uh, and many writers, literary figures historically and so forth, like Chaucer and Shakespeare and, and so on and so forth. And so ultimately what happened was that uh, he wrote a, he read a book by G.K. Chesterton called The Everlasting Man, which is Chesterton's history of mankind, and it helped Lewis sort of put things in perspective. He didn't really have a way to sort of connect the dots. And then subsequently, he, uh, in talking to his best friend, uh, J.K. Tolkien, J.R.K. Tolkien, excuse me, uh, Tolkien basically pointed out to him that the history of, of narratives or stories or myths throughout the world were important, not so much historically important, but were important because of the themes that they presented, which were true. And the difference with the Christian story was it was of the same sort of genre, but it actually was true historically. And all the different arguments that Lewis had uh, just sort of turned to dust, and he ultimately 
uh, as he described it in his uh, biography, the first half of his life called Surprised by Joy, he described the uh, situation in which he had to cave in. He sort of argued himself into a corner and he had to admit that God was God. And within the next year, he went from being a theist to a Christian. So the sequence he went in was he first um, abandoned strict materialism or naturalism became an idealist, and then became a theist and then a Christian. So with that background, he was in a very strong position because he, he knew all the arguments for atheism or naturalism, and he knew why they were wrong. Uh, meanwhile, most of his naturalist friends and writers that he knew of uh, were un unfamiliar with the Christian arguments, um, historically and otherwise. So... This uh, changed his entire life. He became an extremely prolific writer, uh, both fiction and nonfiction. He was quite an accomplished scholar. And uh, he uh, was able to articulate both for scholars and for lay people a lot of insights uh, from a sort of a Christian apologetic standpoint that most people were confused about. They just didn't know how to think it through. And so he would be called a, rational, a, a rationalist theist or theist rationalist. Uh, not so much that it was simply a, a matter of reason. He, he didn't just believe that, but he did believe that the argument for God and the argument for, for, argument for Christianity were overwhelmingly powerful. So from there, he... Uh, as his field was medieval and Renaissance literature, was very familiar with the writings, uh, not just of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, but uh, he was so well-read that he'd read essentially all literature that existed. And so part of the tradition that he knew about of the rise of the West was this natural law tradition. And the natural law he called the Tao. Uh, the Tao, not as Taoism, but the word the Tao as in meaning the way or the path or the principle. And so he wrote a book later called uh, The Abolition of Man, a series of three lectures he'd given. And he, he discusses the, the idea of the objective reality of the natural law being an objective, objective series of principles that we are aware of and we can't get it out of our head. And it's like this voice that speaks to us. Now, we may not interpret it perfectly and we may uh, try to rationalize around it, which is the nature of humankind, but it's there. And he points out in the Abolition of Man in the appendix that if you go through the ancient documents of all civilizations, you find not, not too surprisingly, uh, although he did say he was surprised to find that there was this enormous consistency to uh, certain precepts of you shouldn't murder, you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't covet, uh, the golden rule, mercy, uh, and so forth. And not to say that all these civilizations had everything worked out, they didn't. And not to say that the rulers, the elites in these civilizations did not abuse it. In fact, most of them viewed themselves as above the natural law. It was just what the folk had to do. So in the, the history of the West, uh, Lewis was very well aware of the fact that the natural law tradition, both the Greco-Roman tradition, which ended up going into Cicero and Seneca and others, and the uh, Judeo-Christian tradition came into high relief with Aquinas and who uh, Lord Acton called the first Whig or first liberal uh, to develop the ideas of natural rights, that all individuals have these rights subject to the natural law, which is this objective, divine, moral co uh, code that... Uh, the closer we follow, the better off we are. We all fall short of it, 
but it's a reality that we can't escape. So he then took that and used that to interpret uh, the world and human behavior, uh, which is what he does in the book, The Abolition of Man, and many other uh, writings of his. So he would be in the same tradition as Aquinas, certainly, uh, John Locke, Montesquieu, uh, Lord Acton, Tocqueville, uh, and America's Founders. And there's a book that came out last fall on this subject um, called Nat, uh, C.S. Lewis on Politics and Natural Law that talks about this in great depth. So the, the abolition of man, I, I think we're, we're going to focus on quite a bit because it, it's so relevant to this topic. Um, and, and, and in that book, like you mentioned, he, he does talk about the Platonic philosophers, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, um, and, and so forth. But before we get to that, I, I'd like to ask a little bit about his, his relationship with, with Tolkien and, and the other so-called inklings, this, uh, th- this literary group that, that met together at the uh, Eagle and Child pub uh, in, in Oxford. And, I mean, when, when you're looking at Tolkien's work, I mean, he's, for those who know, he was devout Roman Catholic, and that really permeated a lot of, a lot of his writings. Um, in fact, when I, when I was an undergrad quite some time ago, I mean, this was actually 10 years ago this year, uh, I, I took a class in London on the literature of Tolkien, and the, the, the professor who is sort of an expert in, in that literature, you know, mentioned that Lewis uh, wasn't always, in his fictional writings, wasn't self-consciously trying to pick up a, a Christian audience necessarily. He was trying to write good literature that just had true themes, um, whereas as Tolkien sort of wanted Christians to read the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and he ended up attracting a lot of, a lot of pagans, and, and Lewis kind of attracted the Christians, and that kind of uh, annoyed Tolkien a, a, a little bit. Um, but can, can you talk about that, the, their, their relationship, their friendship? How did that sort of sharpen Lewis's thinking on this issue? Because when we think about uh, Tolkien's work and medievalism and Aquinas, like you said, and then Aquinas who drew heavily on Aristotle, uh, there's there's a lot of content there in 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 the medieval and ancient thought on on natural law. So how heavily did Lewis draw on those earlier thinkers? Well, Lewis drew a great deal. I mean, you have to think of it this way. Uh, Lewis and Tolkien first met um, at a group, a small group in Oxford that was interested in Northern Norse mythology, essentially. Um, And uh, Northernness was the term. So the, but their field was Tolkien was a philologist, and his field was also related directly to what Lewis was involved in. The Inklings group that they ran met each week twice, once in Lewis's apartment at Modellin College, and then second in at the Eagle and Child pub or other pubs, and they would read each other's manuscripts over pints of ale and... and uh, a pork uh, pie or something, and it was great fun. It was great revelry, but it was also, it's you know, it had serious intent. And the influence that Tolkien had on Lewis, as I mentioned, was uh, to m- help Lewis move from being a skeptic to being a theist and then a Christian. Uh, Tolkien was a very devout Catholic, as you mentioned. And um, he was a different kind of person than Lewis. He, uh, Lewis was very gregarious and was became the most popular lecturer at Oxford without any question because he had this great voice, he was funny, and he had this vast uh, uh, reservoir of information and knowledge, uh, both in philosophy and literature, that he could bring to any discussion. So... They, uh, this literary society, the Inklings, uh, was, uh, included many people who became quite prominent in different fields. 
It also had people who were sort of tangentially uh, involved in it through various friendships and correspondence like Dorothy Sayers uh, and T.S. Eliot and others. And about the same time, there was another literary society in England called the Bloomsbury Group, which was Virginia Woolf and her husband, um, at the time Evelyn Wow, who was an atheist at the time, um, who then converted also to Christianity later. Um, and it's interesting, if you compare the Inklings to the Bloomsbury Group, um, the, the Bloomsbury Group was the, was the toast of British literary society because they were in keeping with this sort of atheist, naturalist, utilitarian uh, deconstruction view that we're simply um, products of our genes in the environment, we're sort of matter in motion, and that there's no there there to life. There's no purpose, there's no meaning, uh, and it's pointless. Um, and of course, after World War One, the aftermath of that really triggered this view into a higher relief. So the, the Inklings group were a very tiny group in this vast intellectual world that uh, really looked down on these views. But the interesting thing that happened is that the impact of the Inklings has been so much greater, uh, it, it's hard to even measure it. One interesting thing about Lewis was that he thought that after he died, his work would have been forgotten within about three years. We'd go out of print and that would be the end of it. But it turns out that his work uh, continues to thrive and grow every year. And he could not imagine the extent of his impact. And the same thing with Tolkien. Tolkien, uh, as your listeners may know, devoted his life to creating this this world of fantasy of Middle Earth. And he had his office in his garage, essentially. And he invented new languages and a whole history of Middle Earth, very complicated. But he never thought anybody would care about this. It was just his great interest. And the two of them were very concerned about modern humankind and the pathetic um, sort of uh, dismissive themes that they found in everything, in art, literature, music, and whatever. And so they decided they would have to write books and stories and bring out insights, sort of enduring truths, you might say, for modern men and women. And so that's where Lord of the Rings came from and the Narnia books and the space trilogy that Lewis did and many other things. One book that Lewis did as a scholar was, a, in fact, his last scholarly book is a book called The Discarded Image. And The Discarded Image is his book on the medieval or middle, the, the worldview of people in the so-called Middle Ages. Now, uh, in the modern conception of the period between the fall of the Roman Empire and the Enlightenment, the usual view is that it was the Dark Ages. And neither Lewis nor Tolkien believed that. They thought that was a, a, a post-Enlightenment myth. Uh, other scholars like the sociologist Rodney Stark and many others have written about this in great length. And so, as I mentioned, for example, about the natural law tradition, it really was worked out in great detail by Aquinas. And, of course, this was hundreds of years uh, before the Enlightenment. So the ideas of liberty and limited government and natural rights and so on and so forth existed hundreds of years before, before Locke or Thomas Paine or Jefferson and so on. So in any event, the, the Inklings um, have had a gigantic impact. I mean, the estimates, for example, of sales of The Lord of the Rings is something like 150 million set copies of the, of the three books. Uh, the Narnia books is about the same. Uh, one thing about the Lord of the Rings is that uh, the first book that was published by Tolkien uh, in this genre was The Hobbit, which he actually wrote and read to his, his children. And uh, Lewis was a big uh, booster of him to get it published. And then years later, um, 
the Lord of the Rings was published, and Tolkien really didn't care about having it published because, again, he didn't think anybody would would read it. And Lewis was, through the Inklings and just their being friendship, was the reader of it. And he would make all sorts of suggestions and encourage, encourage Tolkien to pursue it. And Tolkien admitted many times later that if it wasn't for Lewis's nagging him and his influence as far as the corpus of it, it never would have uh, seen the light of day. Um, so there were different kinds of, there were different people, but they had a huge influence on each other. You know, you'd mentioned the, the the Bloomsbury Group, and actually one of the things that were kind of, I mean, it, it, it it's a perennial issue that keeps coming up throughout human history, but, you know, we're seeing it rear its head once again is kind of this uh, pro- progressive ideology of, you know, we're, we always have to be in perpetual revolution, we're always forward, you know, it, 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 it's this, it, it all goes back to how you kind of view the origins and, and, and the state of, of man, right? I mean, and most people, I think, even in, in, in our movement, don't really understand kind of the underlying uh, difference, the philosophical worldview difference between a progressive way of, of thinking about mankind and a quote-unquote conservative way of, of thinking about mankind. And for our listeners, when I say conservative, I don't mean politically conservative. I mean philosophically, uh, culturally conservative. So like for a progressive, you know, they, they, they kind of view the origins of man as, as lowly and the, the state of mankind is ever more ascending to, to godhood, essentially. It's, it's, it's a, it's a false, uh, it's a false gospel. It's this man ascending to, to deity, really. Whereas if you're a, again, to, to, to use the qualified term here, conservative in your thinking about where man came from and and who God is and who we are in relation to him um, it's it, it really goes back to Eden right this concept of man was created for fellowship with God he was created to live in harmony with God sin breaks that relationship and we fall into disrepair that can only be solved by by Christ the God man and I mean, that, that, that was a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's it's very relevant as we're th- kind of thinking about these competing schools of thought, like the Inklings versus the Bloomsbury Group. And we're seeing it again uh, now, certainly. I mean, one of the one, one of the things you you had mentioned, David, when you were talking about uh, Bloomsbury and how it sort of compared to to Lewis and Tolkien and the Inklings uh, is, is this sort of idea of science is, Really, science is 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 God in that kind of mindset, right? It's sort of like, well, we can deconstruct and, and put everything under a microscope and and have every answer, and really man sort of masters nature. And in some of your writings, you 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 talk about scientism and how that's different from science. And I think we're seeing that play out again now with things like uh, climate change and the so-called march for science that happened recently. And so what did what did Lewis mean when he was when he was talking about real science versus scientism and and how does does the 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 natural law approach towards looking at this sort of thing uh, contrast from the the secular atheist progressive approach? Well, the view that that Lewis had about what's called scientism was not that much different from the the, the critical view that Rothbard had of it, and Hayek had, and some of the other Austrians, Mises and so forth. Um, the view um, relates to uh, also the philosophical view of so-called positivism. And the view basically is that uh, from a methodological standpoint, the only thing that we can know is what we can empirically test. And what that result says is situational. It may not be true across town or across the, the world, and it may be different next week. So, uh, there, in other words, the idea is that our cognitive ability is limited to simply being subjective. In other words, not only is our knowledge totally subjective, but truth itself is subjective. And um, so, the so-called modern view is that 
is the sort of positivist view that we can only know what we can empirically test. That particular view came under assault in the latter half of the 20th century by a number of philosophers who simply pointed out that if you believe in that positivism is true um, and that all that you can know is what you can empirically test, the idea of positivism itself cannot be empirically tested, hence it's meaningless. Plus the fact that all events are past events, none of which can be tested. So either you realize that this modernist view of scientism is ridiculous, um, or you end up in lurching into a postmodern nihilism, which is even also uh, uh, meaningless. Because if you say that there is no truth or that postmodernism is the only truth, again, you end up with an incoherent statement because you're assuming truth to make the statement and so on and so forth. So Lewis, um, again, coming from this natural law tradition, believed that it was implicitly true tautologically true, that there's objective truth and objective standards. Uh, there's a contemporary philosopher by the name of Alvin Plantinga, who spent most of his career at uh, the New University of Notre Dame, and he is unquestionably the leading critic of uh, naturalism or atheism and so on by basically pointing out in a far more rigorous way than, than what Lewis did. Lewis was a classical philosopher Plantinga is what's called an analytic philosopher. So what Plantinga basically shows is that if you assume that naturalism is true, i.e. that all that is true or that exists is energy matter and the laws of physics, and that everything in the world is determined by the laws of physics, that would mean, of course, that every event in history, uh, every thought that we have, and so on, is determined by the laws of physics. So our thoughts are simply biochemical reactions, including the idea of naturalism itself. So there's no way to know if naturalism is true, it simply is. But uh, the contradiction that comes in is that whenever you are going to make an inference or an assertion, you have to assume you have free will and a mind that can discern things as opposed to simply it being determined. So you're caught in this great dilemma that either you have a mind and free will to discern what's true, or uh, you can't discern anything, including even question the idea of, of naturalism. So Lewis wrote about this in the first few chapters of a book of his called Miracles. And then Planck has written about this in great detail. So from a libertarian standpoint, this has great relevance. Uh, many of our libertarian friends who are atheists are great uh, devotees of reason and free will and individual agency. Um, however, as Planning has pointed out, is that if you assume that only naturalism is true, you don't have free will or individual agency. And hence, the entire view is incoherent. So... Uh, Lewis critiqued scientism in many places, and he was an advocate of science, but he knew that um, what, uh, in other words, the, the classic question about is and ought, what is does not give you an ought. You may be able to build a nuclear bomb, it doesn't mean you should drop it on a city. So what gives you the ability to determine whether you should drop it on a city or not? And so the natural law tradition is to say there is this objective standard that you compare your choices to to see if it measures up to what, what God would wish us to do or not. And so the, within the libertarian world, there is uh, a certain amount of confusion about the, these things, uh, including whether there is objective morality. So is morality an objective standard that we compare our, our choices and actions to, or is it just whatever we choose is moral by definition because we chose it? And if you have that view, then of course anything goes, which is the Nietzschean view. Yeah, and that, I mean, that actually brings to mind uh, a, a great quote from, from Dostoevsky, you know, Brothers Karamazov, there's this line that, 
if if God does not exist, all things are permissible. And essentially, that is the the logical conclusion. If you divorce yourself from from an objective standard of ethics that comes from the essence and nature of God, then there's really no basis uh, for for rendering any ethical decision. I mean, how how can you say that something is theft or or murder or fraud or anything really? I mean, if there's no ultimate ethical standard by by which to judge, and that's why I think, I mean, there's there's some inconsistency in in, in the libertarian tradition in this regard. When you think of like Rothbard was a natural law theorist, but he he wasn't a theist, right? He was probably an agnostic of of sorts, and so I mean that that sort of begs the question of where does this come from? Really, without God, there is no there is no standard for for the ethics that we that we apply to our political philosophy and and as, as as we kind of bring it back around to political philosophy i mean lewis had a lot to say on this subject i mean he he has the, the this quote that it's better to be under robber barons than than moral busybodies uh he he addresses the the the, the corruption of power in in the weight of glory there's there's a lot of contemporary uh, to his time anyway geopolitical references in the screw tape letters and the, the 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 follow-up to that screw tape proposes a toast, a lot of commentary on, on on the Cold War and communism. Can you can you talk about some of those earlier writings of his? And what does he what does he have to say to us about about our political philosophy and 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 the essence of power and particularly state power? Well, you you mentioned um, the abolition of man book, of course. One of the areas, one of the the uh, works of fiction that Lewis did, as I mentioned, was his so-called Space Trilogy, uh, which is um, three books, uh, the first being Out of the Silent Planet, the second being Perilandra, and the third being uh, That Hideous Strength. And That Hideous Strength is the novelized version of his book, The Abolition of Man. And so the, the trilogy is integrating these ideas um, in a story where the story is essentially uh, the hero is is kidnapped and taken to Mars, which is called Malachandra, and then ends up going to Perilandra, which is Venus, and then goes back to Earth, which is Volcandra. And the uh, Lewis is is very sophisticated in his portrayal of concepts like liberty and imperialism and self-responsibility uh, and objective truth and, uh, and so on and so forth. So the, uh, one of the, the dimensions of this that he brings out in, for example, that hideous strength is that if you, if you believe that there is no objective truth or morality, then, as you said, anything goes. And in the story, it's, in a nutshell, without giving it away to your listeners who may, may not have read it, it's a story of a, a group of faculty and professors at a college in England, and they want to perfect the, the human race. And to do that, they have this particular idea of a essentially what's, what is a eugenics program uh, to create a new uh, being that would not have the problem that most people have, which is a heart or a conscience. And it's that it's this delusion of, of the natural law or having a conscience of right and wrong that holds mankind back. So in the first book in the series called Out of the Silent Planet, um, the kidnappers want to take over the universe. And uh, that then follows into the second volume, Perilandra. And in the third volume, you can see what all that would mean if the, they had their way of creating a totalitarian state, essentially, and the enormous co contradictions of that. So, if, like, uh, since you mentioned Dostoevsky, one of his great insights, and there are others, was that if you don't have this objective um, idea of, of morality from God, then anything goes. So Lewis has, uh, has many essays he would write about discussing some of these questions. So in one of them, uh, he talks about 
if there is no objective morality, and um, then that means that there is no accountability for what you choose. It's simply your choice that's subjective, and uh, you haven't committed an evil or a crime uh, because it's subjective, um, but people may not want you to do that. So your choice must be a mental deficiency. Uh, you haven't been essentially uh, conditioned properly. And so you should, instead of being found guilty of a crime, which has no meaning, you would be put into an institution and you would be socialized into being whatever the proper choices should be, which of course is, is also subjective. And of course the people who are doing the conditions, the conditioning, their minds are subjective too. And they have no idea what's, what is the best outcome. So you end up with this incoherent, uh, incredibly frightening world that the person who is incarcerated can never pay damages to a victim or ever be released because there's no crime that was committed, there's no victim, and hence there's no way to ever get out from under that kind of horror. So in the Soviet Union, of course, we had these examples of, you know, utter absurdity, which Dostoevsky and earlier was prophetic about, and Solzhenitsyn wrote about. So anyone interested in, in liberty and morality, um, I would recommend Lewis's work because it's directly relevant to all these big questions. But it is disturbing, I think, that uh, many libertarians and conservatives and others who believe in restricting the power of the state have a very uh, confused or nebulous uh, ground for taking a moral stance on something. And this also relates to people like, say, Freud or, or Nietzsche. And Nietzsche was essentially a nihilist, but he felt very strongly, he was, he was um, a, an opponent of anti-Semitism to his great credit. He wrote many letters and, and campaigned against it. But how, on, on what basis? Uh, and Freud also did the same thing in many respects. So Lewis's view is like the Apostle Paul said, that this idea of objective morality is written on our hearts and we can't escape it. So um, there was a book that had a big influence on Lewis uh, called The Idea of the Holy, uh, which was written by a man by the name uh, Rudolf Otto. And Otto, uh, this is at the turn of the 20th century, uh, is basically talking about uh, the development of, of religion and, the, and the, uh, the view of God being a reality. So what Otto basically says is that when man became man, um, he and she became aware of the fact that there was a reality that he and she were subject to that they didn't create and they were they were essentially beholden to there was the sky and the earth and the plants and the animals and as rodney stark and others have shown man was originally monotheistic in believing that there was this spirit or something what otto called um the uh uh a uh, numinous that was beyond our control and they were subject to and made everything possible. And what Otto shows is that when this idea of, of the numinous was uh, attached to this idea of a moral sense is when religion began and the idea of God became prominent throughout the world. Um, and that tracked deliberately, you know, deliberately in different ways with many different cultures, but Lewis points out that this was a, a very important thing that defined man as, as mankind. And what separates us from um, animals in the sense of an animal living in the now, as opposed to the human being who speculates on what the now is about and is, is, is aware of time and time preference and history and why they are there, and introspective consciousness. So the, the modern or the naturalist, when we discuss these kinds of things, which don't fit that worldview, the naturalist worldview, then tries to de deny the existence of these things. And so this whole sort of deconstruction, dehumanizing 
reality that you see um, is a an attempt to to fit man into a false narrative. So the libertarian who is interested in individual liberty and right and wrong um, has a tough time making the case if they don't believe that there is uh, a mind like God that not only makes it possible for us to exist and have this concept of right and wrong, but holds the laws of physics and the speed of light and the gravitational constant fixed. In other words, why should why should should the universe have come into existence in the first place out of nothing? And why would the laws of physics come into play within um, one Planck time, 10 to the minus 43 seconds, and be fixed for billions of years and never change? Is that a law? Uh, then what determines that law? And so there is this sort of gap, you might say, um, that... Uh, the post-enlightenment has never really properly dealt with. And I, I might just say one other thing about that. Um, you have this development of this natural law, which uh, Stark and others show led to the ideas of uh, good and evil in a high relief, um, discovering the principles of ethics and economics, the idea of the rule of law, the idea of individual liberty and individual rights, science, and so forth, which is why the West rose, and, and no other place in the world did you see this. And um, the this was tracking, and even America's founders that were deists were all supporters of the idea of the natural law. Jefferson, Franklin, uh, certainly were supporters of the natural law. But with the Enlightenment project, which gets back to something that you were saying, which was this view that, oh, look how smart we are. We figured out um, the theory of money or that uh, the theory of gravity and so forth. We're just so smart. We must be gods in our own right, and we'll eventually evolve into, into being gods. What happened was that at the time of the Enlightenment, which essentially is the 17th century roughly, is that this natural law tradition was split into two rivers, essentially. One was a continuation of the natural law tradition, which what you and I are essentially in. The other one was a naturalist tradition that denies God and objective truth and morality and so on. And the morality that they claim is the only kind of morality that you can have is a situational morality of the end justifying the means or utilitarianism. So that's where the views of Bentham and Mill and the progressive era and so on rose, and that's what we have today. We have this progressive paradigm rooted in the post-enlightenment, which uh, sneers at the natural law tradition, believes it's a fairy tale and a superstition uh, and a fantasy. Um, and the, the interesting irony about this, as Planning and others point, Lewis pointed out, point, pointed out is that if you believe that there's a certain thing called progress, say, or that you want to feed the poor, um, or you want to care for the elderly, um, that's part of the natural law tradition of caring for others. But if you don't buy into the rest of the natural law tradition that you shouldn't steal and shouldn't kill, to feed the poor you may believe it's okay to knock over 10 gas stations or to blow up someone's home or to enslave a population. Uh, you may be able to feed the poor, but you've also broken one of the tenets of the natural law. And the, the fallacy of the utilitarian view, the view that the end justifies the means, is that every means is an end in itself. So if you knock over 10 gas stations, when you're feeding the poor, those 10 gas stations have just have still been knocked over. And so the, the idea of sin or evil is something that simply can't be erased by some sort of utilitarian rationalization. You know, I think it, we'd be uh, remiss if we didn't talk about mere Christianity, since that's Lewis's most well-known nonfiction work. Uh, it has just had an enduring significance over, over over these last 
went five, six decades or so, and has won countless people over to to the faith. And really, in 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 that book, I mean, I I, mean, I remember reading it when I was a, a very new Christian many many years ago. He he reasons to God from the natural law, right? And so it it kind of has to do with what you mentioned earlier with with Paul and the epistle to the Romans, the law of God is written on our hearts. We all sort of know this. I mean, even people who are are professing atheists, I mean, it, it essentially it seems that that Paul's argument, um, which is is carried over into to Lewis's argument, is that deep down we all really know uh, that that there is a God because we're spirit beings and we have a God sense and we we have this sort of nagging feeling that something isn't right in the world and within ourselves and that we're separated from our from our creator and so i mean really lewis is is sort of reasoning from the 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 the, the conscience this sort of innate ability of right and wrong and showing how that that demonstrates that axiomatically right god is there and must be there um, so can you to talk to us about mere Christianity and 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 how Lewis sort of spells out his theory of natural law. There is one of his more mature writings. I believe it came out in the the early 1950s, so approximately 10 years before his death. Yeah, the the origins of the book, um, for those who who don't know, is uh, when Lewis was at Oxford during World War II. Um, the BBC wanted him to do a series of broadcasts to uplift the spirits of the British people um, as the bombing of London was continuing and so forth. And uh, he, he told them that I don't, he couldn't understand why they would want him because uh, he wasn't uh, a professional moralist or a pastor. He wasn't a, a major public figure, wasn't a politician and so on. And, he, and they said, exactly. So he agreed to do it. He, he did a series of, I think it was three or four broadcasts to see how it would go. And they were so incredibly successful that they brought him back uh, a number of times and he ended up doing um, this. And at the end of the war, his voice and that of Churchill's were the two most well-known voices in the United Kingdom. So in the book, uh, originally, by the way, the, the book was written as three books. And then that was combined, as you said, in the early 50s into the book Mere Christianity. So in the, in the first part of the book, he talks, I believe the chapter is called something like uh, morality as a clue to the meaning of the universe, something like the moral code. And he starts out and he, his approach to this is very charming and inclusive because it's like uh, with somebody you're going to simply partner with them and walk together and talk about things and consider this or that. Does this make sense? Does that make sense? So he talks about, isn't it interesting how the person who denies the existence of a moral truth or objective morality um, is the first to shell, to, uh, to yell unfair if his or her seat is taken on a bus. And his question was, where does this idea of fairness come from if there's no objective morality? And his point, and he uses some other examples like this, of people having this innate sense. And as you pointed out, uh, he, he develops this into uh, an understanding that there has to be an objective morality, because otherwise nothing else makes sense. And in a deeper sense, what he's talking about is that we are, um, our bodies are made of molecules and so forth. We're subject to natural physical laws, but we do have this spirit. We have this ability to discern. We have this ability to love and to infer, and that is not material. So Lewis is saying there's a dual reality. There's a, a reality of matter and there's a reality of mindedness. And as human beings, we exist in our minds. And he talks about um, the word, I believe it was Paul who used the word cardia um, to describe the word heart 
and cardia literally apparently means mind. So this view of, of what could be called dualism is also what Planning and others talk about. So we are, since we're people of minds, we try to have an explanation. We don't just react instinctively to things. We have an explanation of what is happening. Should we choose this? Ought we choose it? And so he builds this, this case in the first part of the book. He also looks at different ways that we might view the world. Um, is there uh, uh, one objective truth or are there multiple objective truths? Uh, is there one God or multiple gods and what that would mean? And so he just, he's, he's considering these with the reader and it's, as I said, very charming and very respectful of the reader. And as you proceed through it, uh, you, you see very clearly what he's aiming at. Um, and that objective morality cannot possibly simply be an instinct of self-preservation. It has to be something that is beyond us that we discover and then realize we're subject to and want to, the way he would put it in some of his other works, is that uh, he believed that God is love and all truth and all power and all existence. And we seek to be to enter into this reality. Now, we may enter into sort of false versions of it, which don't really do the trick. Um, but we want to be uh, essentially, want, we sort of want to enter into truth, goodness, and beauty. We want to be part of that. And... Uh, so I, I agree with you. I think Mere Christianity is an, an incredibly effective book. Um, and it's, uh, uh, but, you know, it's a beautifully done book, and it's very respectful of readers. And, you know, along those lines, I mean, one of the, one of the things that Lewis talks about in, in Mere Christianity, I mean, he, he draws a lot, I think, on the, on, on the classical and, and medieval thinkers. He talks about the cardinal virtues, the three theological virtues. And he talks about how the, the the greatest of sins is pride. And I think that's also a very medieval kind of concept, really sort of comes from Aquinas and and Dante. And, and I mean, I, I think it's it's true. Uh, but I, we, a while back, we were interviewing uh, <clears throat> Jason Jewell from Faulkner University on the great books. And we talked quite a bit about uh, the divine comedy and how, you know, the, the lowest level of the inferno is is reserved for the proud, right? And Lewis is talking about how the great sin is is pride, but he also talks about this concept of uh, self love, and I think that's something that, that that needs clarification. A lot of people don't really understand um, maybe what he meant by that, uh, because when we also have. You know, Ayn Rand, who is a contemporary who did not like Lewis at all, and she had talked about the virtue of selfishness. But then Lewis over here in a very different way is talking about self-love as compared to the great sin of, of pride. So can you, can you kind of clarify what he, what he meant by that? What is, what is genuine um, – well, maybe genuine is not the right word, but what is, what is pride, real pride – uh, and, and then what is natural, God-given self-love, and how is that compatible with uh, uh, the, the, the worship of, of God? Well, I think Lewis was right. I agree with you. I think that Lewis was right about pride is the basis of all evil. And that <clears throat> the idea is, and, and Lewis writes about the distinction between um, in Christianity, the self and the individual becoming fulfilled perfectly through Christ uh, versus the person who believes they become perfectly fulfilled through themselves by turning inward. And it's a delusion to do the latter because the person did not create themselves. They cannot sustain themselves without the existence of physical laws and the fact they have minds, which they had nothing to do in creating and so on and so forth. And they're still subject to these objective concepts of morality and, and so forth, which they had nothing to do in creating. And um, 
So Lewis's view was that if you turn from the idea of the natural law and the the perfect love being of Christ that created this and us in the process, then you turn away from your own reality, your own existence. And in fact, Lewis described hell as a room that you enter and you lock from the inside. Um, in other words, you damn yourself. So if you take someone like, say, uh, Richard Dawkins um, or Sam Harris or others uh, who are the so-called new atheists, you know, they're militantly against the idea of God. Um, Dawkins and uh, Christopher Hitchens believe that, that the idea of God is one of the ho most horrible things um, in history and creates all the great evil in the world and so on and so forth. They're perfectly free to have that choice. And so they will actually choose, um, and they believe that their life ends at death, their physical death. And God's view, essentially, as Lewis would point out, is they will get their way. They will sim sim essentially cease to exist, uh, and they will enter that room of total oblivion. And um, so uh, the the argument that Lewis would, is bringing to uh, all of this is not just the, the platonic argument that there are ideas that exist independent of the material world. For example, um, the multiplication tables. Do the multiplication tables exist objectively, or is it simply a subjective projection of us? Or does a number seven exist objectively? When you when you draw a number seven on a chalkboard, is that the seven, or is the seven the idea that the chalk represents? And we have in our mind, when we read a book or, or anything else we're perceiving, we have this idea that is in addition to the material reality of the molecules, and the molecules themselves can only exist because the idea of physics, these laws that exist, which themselves are not material. So the, the idea of pride is this really an, an immense uh, delusion, an idolatry sort of, of self-love. Um, and uh, many of Lewis's books um, have this as a theme, um, and uh, if you talk about Rand, the one thing that I think um, is important to realize about Rand is that Rand was well aware of the fact, having um, been exposed as a child to the Soviet Union and all the horror of that, she did not see the West as being much of an answer to that, because the West was imbued with utilitarianism and sort of situational morality. So she wanted to create an objective standard, which I, I admire her for trying to do that. But as a naturalist or an atheist, she was trapped in the same narrative. So the, her, the way she tried to, to work it out was she would say that we are individuals and we want to advance our lives and we have to be free to make choices to advance our lives. But there are a lot of other individuals out there too, and they are also want to advance their lives. So the moral basis of uh, our being able to do that has to be that we would respect their similar interest in being free. Yeah, the jump, the jump that she makes is that uh, since I want to be free, um, and other people want to be free, that's the basis of morality, and that for me to not want to serve myself first is immoral, because the only basis is my own personal ambition to advance my life, okay? So the problem that creeps in with this, you know, that's why she has this view that altruism and other directedness is evil, is immoral, the cause of all horrors in the world collectivism and so forth. Uh, so if the only basis of morality is self-interest or self-advancement, um, and even in her view that you have this reciprocal rights arrangement as a basis of morality in a society, the problem is that if you believe or have good knowledge that you could better advance yourself by killing people or stealing or causing a war to enrich yourself 
it would be actually immoral for you to do that if you if you could get away with it. There's no check. There's no objective standard as the check other than reciprocal rights, and that simply doesn't apply. So that's why her her view of morality is a house of cards. It basically essentially is another utilitarian argument. And so Lewis's view, which I think is the, the, the strong view, is that there is an objective standard which is unchangeable. And hence, it doesn't matter how much you um, have pride for yourself, uh, humility to submit yourself to this objective standard and this objective judge of what's good and evil is your calling. So when Jesus was asked, what is the law? He answered it by saying to love God perfectly and to love all others perfectly, uh, which is essentially to uh, restate the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments being loving God and the next six being loving other people. And so that natural, that natural law influence is the, uh, even from a practical standpoint, as I said before, was the basis of how the ideas of liberty took hold. And uh, it is true that if you, the closer you, you follow the natural law precepts, the more prosperous people will be, the happier they will be, the safer they will be, and so on. David, as we move to a close here, what would your recommendation be to our listeners if they're if they haven't read very much Lewis and they're just kind of looking to get started, what what works would you recommend they they begin with? I mean, I, I know, for example, that I have an anthology book uh, that has a, a lot of his nonfiction works in it, the, the complete C.S. Lewis signature classic. Um, but wh- wh- where, where should they begin? If, if somebody's just looking to start sort of diving into Lewis's thinking, where would they start? Well, I think the two the two books we talked about before, uh, Mere Christianity and the, Ab- the Abolition of Man, would probably be the better two. The Abolition of Man is not a book about Christianity. It's a book on objective uh, objectivity, so to speak, in aesthetics, ethics, and uh, uh, it is uh, uh, an epistemology. And it would be a, a great... It's a short book. It's a great way to sort of get his basic uh, narrative for reality. But Mere Christianity is the better book as far as bridging that into is theism true? Is Christianity true? Um, a lot of our uh, a lot of our friends also are not aware of the scholarly work that's been done on, for example, the historicity of Jesus, say, or um, the uh, the how it was uh, Christian clerics who were the first to discover economic principles in the Middle Ages, not Adam Smith, and so on. But I think from 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 getting into Lewis, I would suggest those two books. Another book of his nonfiction, uh, which I'd recommend, is a book called God in the Dock. And um, but others may prefer his fiction. So uh, certainly. The Space Trilogy um, would be high on the list. Uh, I mean, they're great reads, but they have uh, very provocative messages and questions that that uh, everyone, I think, would, would benefit from. And his, his most um, clearly libertarian book is the book that hit his uh, fiction book is the book that hideous strength. One other thing I should mention is that another one of his novels, which is one of my favorites, is a book called The Great Divorce. And it's not about marriage. It's the divorce between good and evil or heaven and hell and so on. And uh, in a nutshell, the story is a man who wakes up in this town and the town is very dreary and it's drizzling and all the buildings are gray and they're falling apart and people are moving further away from everybody, into infinity. And it's basically a town in which everybody's totally self-absorbed. It's a, it's a town of narcissists. And uh, there's a bus there, and people waiting for the bus. So he gets on the bus, and he goes on this journey, and he ends up in this other place where it's 
beautiful and sunny and so on and so forth. And the people get off the bus and they all discover that they're uh, invisible. They're essentially ghosts. They discover eventually, and they're all all these these beings were dead, and they're given another opportunity to go to heaven, essentially. And uh, it's an incredibly imaginative book about the physical the physical structure of these two worlds, and the way people behave. Um, and you're talking about the idea of, of the concept of pride, that most of the people who go on the bus to this world are so prideful. They would rather go back to what's called the gray town um, and be in the gray town uh, than to have this opportunity for uh, perfect happiness and so on because they're so prideful. And, it's, it's, and you'll, you'll, you'll read about people that we all know, um, essentially. So it's been made into a stage production. There's a film being developed for it. So that's another novel that I would recommend. Yeah, that's that's actually one of my favorites as well. So good good recommendation there. That's all the time we have on this episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. I want to thank our guest, David Thoreau, founder and president of the Independent Institute, which does fantastic work, uh, as well as the C.S. Lewis Society of California. David, thank you so much for being with us, and hopefully we'll be able to have you on again soon. Well, thank you, Nick. If you want us to reach out to us, you can email podcast at libertarianchristians.com. If you'd like to support the work of the Libertarian Christian Institute, number one, please share this podcast with your friends and family and on social media. Number two, you can also support us financially at libertarianchristians.com slash donate. Thank you, and we'll talk to you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com. Libertarian Christian Podcast.